All right, how's everybody doing? Everybody good? Yeah? Want to say hi to everybody online? Again, like Michelle said earlier, we, we didn't catch you for the first uh, little bit there, but we got you up now. And so thank you for being with us, and uh, we, we hope that you're in for a real treat today. Uh, I'm excited today, guys, because today I'm going to continue our series about meeting the real Jesus. But today we're going to be looking at a little bit of our response to Jesus in light of Jesus being who he is. And so I know we just prayed, but I want to say another quick prayer, and I'm going to jump right into my message for today. And uh, I'm really excited about what God has put in my heart to share with everybody today. So let's have a word of prayer. Father God, thank you so much for being who you are. Uh, I pray right now that as I, I share and I, I pour myself into the message that you have put into me this week, uh, and really for, for weeks and months before this, God, I just pray that you would be here in a very powerful way, that you would be physically here in this space, but you would also be in the, the, the hearts and the minds of those who are watching online, and that everybody that is a part of this message right now, myself included, that we would just hear and glimpse you, that we would know you for who you really are, and that we would learn what it means to love you because you love us. We pray in your name. Well, I don't know about you guys, but if I, I, I think about it, there are certain kinds of people that you know in your friend circles uh, that you would want to take with you if you had to go to court, right? You, can, you guys think of anybody in your friend circle? If you had to go to court, you know who you'd bring with you? Yeah, I see some shaking heads. And then there's other kind of friends that you have that you would bring with you and take with you if you were going to go to a party, Right? Think about it. You can probably think of one or two, and I, I hope you have at least one or two people that you would take with you if you had to go to a rough part of town, right? I see some smirks. I see some laughs, yeah? And there's probably, maybe, I don't know, maybe you have some people who you would want to take on vacation with you, right? Go on an adventure together. If you're lucky, if you're lucky, because I think most of us, uh, don't ever get to experience this, but if you're lucky, you might know one or two people that you would feel completely comfortable calling at 2 o'clock in the morning to share in your suffering. You guys know anybody like that? The people that you would entrust to do your surgery or maybe to take care of your kids uh, will probably not be the same kinds of people that come to mind when you play the old game or you ask the question, who would you take with you if you were going to be stranded on a desert island? You ever guys ever play that game? Hey, if you're going to be on a desert island, what are the two friends you bring with you? They're probably not the same people, right? You with me? We're together on this? You have different kinds of people that you would take to different kinds of situations, correct? You guys tracking with me? We're on the same page, right? This is correct, right? We all know brilliant minds who could do with a touch of humility, we know humble people who should learn to stand up for themselves. We know driven types who need to lighten up. We know jokesters who need to grow up, right? And we know gracious people who really ought to get good and mad once in a while because it's good for you, right? But imagine, imagine if you found all of that stuff in one person. Imagine if you had all of that wrapped up in one person. Superb in front of a jury. Terrific taste in movies. Ready at the drop of a hat to go on an awesome vacation. And also able to handle your deepest, darkest secrets. Wouldn't you want that person to be your friend? I mean, I would. <laughs> Think about it. Friends, Jesus is this man. Jesus is this man. Remember these snapshots. I want you to close your eyes for a minute, okay? It's okay. Just don't fall asleep on me. Close your eyes for a minute, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remind you of some of the scenes that we've talked about with Jesus, and I want you to use your mind's eye and to vividly imagine what these scenes look like, okay? So remember these snapshots. Remember them. Bring them into your mind. Use your imagination here. Jesus on the beach, and he just caught his, his, his buds fishing. Picture it. 
Jesus clearing the temple. Jesus touching the man with leprosy after his famous sermon. Jesus infuriating the Pharisees by healing on the Sabbath. Jesus at noon with the Samaritan woman by the well. Jesus before Lazarus' tomb. Jesus losing his cousin John the Baptist. Jesus late into the night in the wedding festivities of the reception at Cana. Jesus at dinner with Martha. Jesus learning with his father Joseph to use a hammer and a nail. Jesus walking all of those miles by foot. Jesus at his own trial and torture. And eventually his death. And then Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Think about all these different scenes, guys. Think about this. The, 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 the vast richness of this man, Jesus. It's enthralling. It's captivating. To say that Jesus is perfect, you can open your eyes now, by the way. Don't take a nap on me. To say that Jesus is perfect, as some people like to do, uh, it may be true, but I don't think it's the right choice of words. A stainless steel ball is perfect. Cinderella's glass slipper was perfect. Some poems can be perfect. Perfect makes me think of like a, a Barbie doll or a math problem, right? Words are important. Words can shape our perception. When they define, they can also distort. I think there's a far better way to describe this man whose face is the most human face of all. And I think we can describe him like this. Jesus is beautiful. And when I say that, I'm not talking about his physical appearance. Jesus is beautiful. His ability to live with all of these qualities that we've seen in such a way that not one quality dominates or eclipses the richness of the other qualities. To live in such a way that there is always something of an element of surprise, and yet, however he acts, it turns out to be exactly what was needed in that moment. Yeah, Jesus' brilliance shines through, but it's never blinding, it's never overbearing. He's not glistening white marble. He is the playfulness of creation. He is scandalous and full of utter goodness. Jesus is the generosity of the ocean and the ferocity of a thunderstorm. He is as cunning as a snake and as gentle as a whisper. He is the gladness of sunshine and the humility of a 30-mile walk by foot on a dirt road. Jesus is reclining at a meal. He's laughing with friends. And then Jesus is going to the cross. This is what I mean when I say that Jesus is beautiful. Jesus is beautiful. But most of all, I think the thing that makes him the most beautiful is the way in which he loves. It's the way in which he loves. In all of these stories, in every encounter, we have watched love in action. Love in action. Love as strong as death. A blood, sweat, and tears love. It's not like some get well card kind of love. Are you with me? You learn a great deal about the nature of a person in the way that they love, why they love, and in what they love. You guys agree with that? You learn a great deal about a person. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 6, says this. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, 
a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it out on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. That's a word we don't use very often, right? What's that mean? They were mad beyond mad. They were ready to punch somebody, right? They were furious, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus said that she's done a beautiful thing. But it takes a beautiful heart to recognize the beauty in such a scandalous act and to love it the way that he does. And this is why I say Jesus is beautiful. And when you understand this about Jesus, it means everything. And it changes everything. It does and it, it will. But only, only if you find it for yourself. Only if you find it for yourself. Will the beauty of Jesus change everything for you? All of this is merely entertaining unless it opens the door for us to actually experience Jesus. It's just a good story. The best thing that we can do right now before we go on with the rest of this series, before we go on with the rest of our lives, is to pause before we get more saturated with more information about Jesus and to begin to discover Jesus for ourselves. To experience him personally in these ways. As Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see. Come and see for yourself. Friends, this is not simply a nicer view of Jesus that we've been talking about. This is not merely a, a better version uh, of Jesus or just a, a, a smattering of fresh insights that we're, we're getting. This is not some sort of you know, confetti that is, is beautiful while it falls, but it's swept away very quickly. Guys, Jesus is our life. Jesus is our life. We need Jesus like we need oxygen, like we need water, like the branch needs the vine. Jesus is not just a figure for your devotion books. He's the missing essence of your existence. Whether we know it or not, we are desperate for Jesus. We're desperate for Jesus. What if you could have Jesus in the way that Peter and John had him? The way that Mary and Lazarus did. To have Jesus, to really have him, is to have the greatest treasure in all the world. To have his life, his joy, his love, and his presence, it cannot be compared to anything. To know him as he is, it's like coming home. It's like coming home. A true knowledge of Jesus is our greatest need, and it's also our greatest happiness. The purpose of your being here on this planet at this moment in time, I think, essentially comes down to three things. Essentially comes down to three things. Number one, you're here to love Jesus with all that is within you. You were designed, you were created to love Jesus. This is the first and the greatest command, isn't it? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything else flows from here. Everything else. The reason you exist, first and foremost, is to love God. To love Him. The second thing is to share your daily life with him. 
to let him be himself with you on the beach, at supper, along the road, just like the disciples did. Just like the disciples did. And then from there, the third thing I believe why we exist and why, why we exist now is to allow his life to fill yours. To allow Jesus' life to come in and to fill yours, to heal you, and to express itself through your life. Right? There is no other way that you can hope to live as he did and show him to others than to allow him to come in and live through you. It's the only way. Love Jesus. Love Jesus. Let him be himself with you. Allow his life to permeate your life. And if you do this, I promise you that the result of this is going to be breathtaking. It's going to blow you away. Now, here's the best news that you're ever going to get in your entire life. You ready for it? You're already sitting down, so that's good. You get to. You get to. You get to love Jesus. You get to let himself be himself with you. You get to allow his life to come in and permeate yours in every facet, in every way. You are meant to have this Jesus. You're designed for it. More than you have each new day, more than you have your next breath. I mean, for goodness sake, as we sung earlier, he is your next day, he is your next breath. You are meant to share your life with him. This is why you're created. Not just a glimpse now and then here at church. Not just a rare sighting. Like some bird that's hard to track. And you're also meant to live his life. You're also meant to live his life. The purpose of his life, death, and resurrection was to ransom you from your sin, to deliver you from the clutches of evil, and to restore you to God. To restore you to God. So that his personality and his life could heal and fill your personality, your humanity, and your life. This is why he came. This is why he came. To heal and to save and to restore Anything else is just bad religion. I think sadly, for too many people, the Jesus that, that they know is just too religious to love. Too distant to experience for themselves. And too rigid to be a source of life. And I think this is one explanation as to why the church in the world right now is struggling in large part. But hear this, and I want you to know this today. Jesus has not changed one bit. Jesus has not changed. Jesus is still very much himself. This is still how he acts to this day. The Bible assures us and says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This, as we've been studying together, is how he chose to present himself to us. This is who he is. God is, he's better than we ever thought. Much better than we ever feared, better than we ever dared to even believe. So the best thing that you can do at this point is simply to begin to love Jesus. Just love him. Love him. It's going to begin to open up your heart and your soul to experiencing him and to receiving his life. Just begin to make a practice of loving Jesus. As I'm driving in my car, I'll just simply tell him, I love you. 
Not once like a sneeze, but over and over again. Jesus, I love you. I love you. I love you. You know what this does for me? It turns my whole being toward him. Everything inside of me gets reoriented towards him. He becomes the focus of everything. When I wake up and the sunshine is pouring through the window, I'll say, I love you. A breeze will blow across my face ever so gently, and I will turn into the wind, and I'll say, I love you. I love you, I love you, I love you. Find a few worship songs that lift your heart. Can somebody get me some water, please? I'm sorry. Find some worship songs that lift your heart. Thank you. Linger with them. Play them over and over and over again. And simply tell Jesus that you love him. Put them on your phone. Play them in your car. The more you practice this, the richer it becomes. The richer it becomes. When you wake up in the morning and you smell the coffee, just say, Jesus, I love you. When somebody makes you smile over a bowl of great noodles, when you read a passage in a book that moves you or answers a question, taking a hot bath, watching your kids play, walking by a flower shop, when somebody is kind, when you're in that moment just after it rains, when you hear a piece of music you love, say, Jesus, I love you, I love you, I love you. Guys, this doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be complicated. I think too often we overcomplicate all of this. There's a guy named Francis of Assisi. Have you guys ever heard of this guy? Francis of Assisi, some of you? He's been referred to by some in, in church history. He's long dead, by the way. He's, he's lived a long time ago. But he was referred to by some as the second Christ. Now, I know on the surface this sounds a little sacrilegious, but I want you to hear why he was referred to this as this. They said because his life was so totally given over to expressing the life of Jesus. So what can we learn from from this man that was devoted like no other? A church historian, Chesterton, he wrote this. He says, Francis did not love humanity, but he loved men. In the same way, he did not love Christianity, but he loved Christ. He did not love Christianity, but he loved Christ. Wow. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. Francis did not fall in love with church. He fell in love with Jesus. Chesterton went on and he says this. He says, his religion was not a thing like a theory, but more a thing like a love affair. How many of you can describe accurately your relationship with Jesus as a love affair? If you really want Jesus, I believe that you're going to have to learn how to chip away at some of the religious glaze that is crusted over each and every one of us. To begin with, and to help you make a simple practice of loving Jesus, I think it's going to be immensely helpful to be released from a sense of false reverence. Now, there's a place for real reverence, but I'm talking about false reverence. John, the 13th chapter, beginning in verse 2, says these words, It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, he took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, 
Are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested. You will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. This is a marvelous story <laughs> in many different ways. But I want you to catch this. Peter looks into the face of Jesus and emphatically says, no. Did you guys catch that? Like, like I mean, you, you got to love his conviction here, right? Very reverent, you know? But it's the wrong application. Peter tries to draw the line at Jesus washing his feet, acting out of good intentions for a sincere respect for his master. There's good intention there. He, he feels like he's trying to respect Jesus. He's like, you're not going to do that to me. But you learn something important about Jesus when he doesn't allow that line to be drawn. He doesn't allow that line to be drawn. He washes his feet anyway. He washes his feet anyway. Jesus, over and over and over, continues to shatter our stained glass views of him. But this motive, this, this reverence for God, we've got to be careful with this one. This lets in a great deal of the clutter that gets between us and God. It gets between us and God because it seems like the proper and right thing to do. It seems this way. For instance, Jesus never insisted that we come to him through a mediator, but rather come to him directly. And while phrases like, Almighty God and Everlasting Father are a beautiful expression. It is very different than the one that Jesus gave us, which is Abba, which means Daddy. Daddy. Papa. Daddy, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm up this morning, I want to talk to you. Has a totally different feel than Almighty God and Everlasting Father. Are you with me? Much different. Even if you do not start out that way, addressing God with a, a coat and tie kind of formality that, 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 that you, would have, you would have never wanted that between you and your own earthly father, would you? Think about it. If you did, you and your dad would not have the kind of relationship that you do. Daddy, Abba, is what Jesus gave us. It's what Jesus gave us. I'm going to show you two passages where he gave this to us. Romans 8, 15. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba is a Greek word, and it literally means in English, Daddy most intimate word to call a father that you can get. In a lot of Protestant circles, Jesus is referred to as many different things, but you, you hear words like, you know, the good Lord or the good shepherd, you know, things like this. They're just kind of, and I think they, they, they sound good, you know, but it's kind of like a, a, a marshmallow phrase to me, right? It's sweet and it's spongy and it's void of any personality, right? That there's nothing to it. Very kind of white robe and sandals, you know, the typical image of Jesus. Jesus never used these terms. None of the disciples ever used these terms. What would happen to your marriage, guys, if you only ever called your wife the good woman? Ladies, what would become of your relationship if your husband insisted that you only address him as good sir? Think about it. How would the dynamics of your relationship with your closest friend change if you were required to no longer use their first name, but that the more formal Mr. Smith or, or Miss Jones was used? When Saul encounters the risen and ascended Lord on the road to Damascus, he asks him, who are you? Jesus replied to him and says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He says, my name's Jesus. It's pretty straightforward. Not Mr. Christ, 
right? See, we are the ones who keep inserting these kind of respectable gold-leafed expressions that, that, that you know, they, 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 you know they, they make us feel good. Like we're offering some sort of offering of reverence to God, but, but he's never asked for it. And, and we're not realizing the entire time that this is kind of the religious talk that Jesus didn't really like that much when he was here. Right? Now, I realize that I am challenging things that good people hold sacred. I realize this. And the point is not to be nitpicky on words. I want you to hear me on this. But the point is the effect of the words that we use. The effect of the words that we use. Stained glass language reflects a view of what Jesus is like. It reflects a view of what Jesus is like. It shapes our perceptions of him and therefore our experience of him. Are you with me? It's all interconnected. Whatever the term may be, just ask yourself, does this sound like his actual personality? Does this capture his, his playfulness, his, his way of infuriating the Pharisees, his humanity, his generosity, his, his scandalous freedom, all the things that we've looked at with Jesus? Does this sound like the Jesus at the wedding at Cana, at dinner with sinners, quote-unquote, fishing with the, the guys at the beach? Or does the phrase conjure up a more proper religious image of Jesus? You know, the original writers of the Bible, they didn't have the these and the vows. They didn't even use a capital H when referring to him. Did you know that? <laughs> they didn't do that back then. We added these later as an act of reverence. They came later. We put them in there, along with red ink to set apart the words of Jesus. But the effect is to create a very false impression, a, a, a best-to-keep-our-distance kind of piety. These ways of speaking about Jesus perpetuate distorted views of his personality, and they keep Jesus at a distance, which, friends, is actually the polar opposite of what his entire life was committed to, which is intimacy with every single one of us. Intimacy. When we do these things, it makes it hard to love him, honestly. Now, I can hear, I, I can feel the, the hair raising on the back of the religious spirit even now as we're talking. And I just want to say, careful. Don't let that false piety distort your mood right now. Listen, this stuff actually can get in the way of loving Jesus. I've experienced this in my whole life. You can honor him, you can respect him, you can insist that others do, and you can, in the process, never actually love Jesus. And this is not what he wanted. This is not what he wanted. False reverence is a choice veil of false religious fog, and it will bring a shroud between your heart and his. Speaking of veils, did you know that the moment Jesus died on the cross, the curtain or the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom? From top to bottom. Now, I want you to understand something, friends. This is an enormously symbolic and staggering event that oftentimes we just breeze right over. the rest of the temple from the place that was called the Holy of Holies. The presence of God, the Shekinah glory, dwelt in that place. And this veil separated us from God. While the faithful were kept out, the presence of God was kept in this, 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 this chamber. It was a very clear message. God is too holy for us to approach. He's too holy to approach. The Jews did not even dare utter his name. But we do. We are on a first name basis. Jesus came and changed everything.
through his cross. He paid for our sin. He cleansed us. He bought us from the claim of Satan, and he brought us back to his Abba, to his daddy, who's our daddy too. And Jesus established a whole new way of relating to God. He often reclined at meals with people. He stopped along the road to chat. He touched them. He embraced them. He called them by name, and they called him by name. Jesus is always closing the distance with us and drawing near and coming close. The encounters that we find in the Gospels, they are intimate. I mean, my goodness. The whole incarnation is intimate. The whole incarnation is intimate. Emmanuel. What's that mean? God with us. God with us. So my question is, why do we feel we must help Jesus set that mistake right by pushing him off a bit with reverent language and lofty tones? Now, I understand that most of it is done with good intention by men and women who want to honor Jesus, just like Peter. But the irony is that this is not how God chose to relate to us. This is not how he chose to relate to us. When Jesus died, that most, excuse me, that most holy of curtains, it was ripped in half. It was torn from top to bottom. And who was it that did that? It wasn't the priests. It was not the priests. It was God himself. God took that veil and he ripped it in two. So why do we insist that we go and we try to stitch it back up? And sew it back together. A whole lot of what passes for worship and, and sacrament and instruction in Christian circles, they're just good old-fashioned sewing lessons trying to teach you how to hang that veil up again in your life. Done in the spirit that says God is too holy for us to approach. I've read it in countless places written by popular theologians. I've heard it said many times in sermons even. We must not be too close or too intimate with God. God is not your buddy. Don't presume to come too close to Jesus. Said who? <laughs> they are trying to recreate the Holy of Holies in the name of reverence. Except it was God who ripped that curtain forever with his own two hands. He tore that curtain. That is clearly over. We no longer relate to God in this way. Understanding this truth is going to open up realms for you in relating to Jesus, and it's going to enable your heart to love him more. To love him more. Think of the woman whose tears poured over Jesus' feet, wiping them with her hair, kissing them. Jesus loved that moment. He loved that moment. John was leaning on, on Jesus' chest during the Last Supper. Jesus, he, he, he reaches out to touch the leper, the blind man. He held children in his lap. Intimate, 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 over and over and over again in every story. Do you recall the parable about the prodigal son? What's it say there? Verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. In this parable, Jesus is explaining how God wants to relate to us. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. And when he says that, you know what he means? He meant that he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. I hope, I hope this is the way that you approach God. Peter learned his lesson, by the way. A week or two after the foot washing, following the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus appears on the shore just across from where the boys are fishing. He acts like he's just a guy out for a stroll. He asks if they've had any luck. 
he suggests they try one more spot, and he reproduces the catch that caught them all in the beginning. Watch, though, how Peter responds this time. John 21, verse 7, And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Peter is 100 yards offshore. That's about three city blocks, by the way. It's a long way to swim, especially in a full-length robe. It'd be like trying to swim wrapped up in a bed sheet. Peter does not care. He does not wait for the boat. He forgets about the, the fish. And as quick as you can say, Jack be nimble, he hits the water, swimming, thrashing, and gasping for air. And then stumbling ashore as fast as he can get to Jesus... Do you think then he drew another line in the sand and said, Hello, Mr. Christ, may I approach now? Peter is a passionate, emotional, impulsive guy. A guy like me. He just swam 100 yards in a bathrobe. Now I'm going to bet dollars to donuts he ran right up to Jesus, sopping wet as laundry from the washer, and he hugged him, soaking the risen Jesus. Sopping wet. If Peter didn't do it, you know that Jesus did. You know that Jesus did. Adding tears of joy to the wet embrace. I don't know what you can say about that scene except it's beautiful. It's beautiful. That's the way to do it, friends. Just begin to make a practice of loving Jesus. Relate to him as you see his friends did in the Gospels. Now, as I'm closing, I want to just add one last word that will help you in loving Jesus. And it's something that we actually talked about just a little bit ago for those of you who are here, which I find very fascinating because I didn't even realize this when I wrote this message. But doing things for God is not the same thing as loving God. Are you hearing me? Doing things for God is not the same thing as loving God. Jesus loves the poor. So there's movements that have arisen that make service to the poor the main thing. Even though Jesus never said that being poor was more noble or even spiritual. Recent conversations in our culture and in church have centered around a lot about justice. So we rush off to the corners of the world to fight justice. And not always, but oftentimes we leave Jesus behind. And we actually come to think that service for Jesus is friendship with him. That's the same thing. That's like a friend who washes your car and cleans your house, but never goes anywhere with you. He never comes to dinner. He never wants to take a walk, but he's a faithful friend, even though you never talk. How many children have said, my dad worked hard to provide for us, but all I ever really wanted was his love. This is yet again another cunning ploy of the enemy to keep us from the kind of intimacy with Jesus that will heal our lives. It'll heal our lives. And it'll change the world. We are not meant to merely love his teaching or his morals or his kindness or his social reforms. We are meant to love the man himself. To know him intimately. To keep this as the first and foremost practice of our lives. It is a fact that people most devoted to the work of God often spend the least amount of time with God. It's shocking, but it's true. First things first. Love Jesus. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, 
used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Another beautiful snapshot of Jesus' personality. There's something so humble and gracious about Jesus' ability to receive this. It's hard to receive even a nice word from somebody, isn't it? Without kind of deflecting and putting it off or something. Or It's hard. Jesus has been giving and giving and giving. And even in his grief and in his weariness, he has been giving. And now he lets someone do something for him. Something extravagant. Something that's loving. And I think this reveals the beauty of his personality. That he can receive this gift, he can appreciate it, and he can be grateful for it. He's very moved by her gesture. And he silences Judas for rebuking her. And I, as I do often with stories in the Bible, ask, why is this story here? The story is told for our benefit, to help us to love him, to help us to love him. Do I bring something to your heart, Jesus? Yeah, you do. Remember Gethsemane? Stay with me. I want you to stay with me. Right? This is what Jesus is saying. Look at Jesus. In the very moment that Jesus most admits his divinity, allowing himself to be worshipped by Mary, he reveals his desire for intimacy with us. This is what Jesus chose. This is how he acted with his friends. So I am making a practice of loving Jesus. I'm making a practice of loving Jesus for who he really is. The Jesus who gave us the oceans and the rivers. The Jesus who gave us laughter. The Jesus who is so generous, he served up over 900 bottles of wine at the wedding of Cana. And this one shift to learn to love Jesus consistently. It has changed my life in ways that nothing else could compare to. Friends, we are meant, we are created to love Jesus. But this is a difficult thing to describe. It's hard for me to stand up here and preach a sermon and describe to you what this is like. As Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see. Come and see. And so at this moment, I'm going to say a prayer in a, in a second here, and we're going to sing a song together. But during this moment, if you have not yet, or you ha have, have not fully, completely given your life to Jesus, and over the past weeks you have been catching glimpses of the beauty and the love that Jesus has for you, and it's been stirring something inside of you, now would be the perfect time for you to just say, yes, Jesus, I believe, and I will love you, and I'm all in for you. This is the moment that he chose for you. This is the moment. This is the time for you to come home to the heart of God. And so as I'm praying if you're here in person and you want to declare that to God, I just want to invite you to stand as I'm praying. If you're watching us online, I just want you to put a comment in there. Whatever you want to say, just to declare that you're surrendering your life to Jesus and you're, you're all in for him and you're choosing to love him. Just put us a comment. Let us know that you've made that decision because I personally want to celebrate that decision with you. Let's pray.
sometimes it is so hard for us to break the barriers of the things that we've grown up perceiving and thinking about you. Sometimes because of what we're taught or what we read or what we experience or what we, we, we are convinced of falsely, we have a view of you that is not fully accurate. And it causes us to have a distant relationship from you. To not want to be with you because it makes us uncomfortable. And so we fill our lives with doing things for you instead thinking that that will pacify what you're after. But Jesus, we know, I know in my heart that you have created each and every one of us to be loved by you and then to love you and to allow you to come in and live uh, your life through us, to transform us and change us and restore us and heal us. But Jesus, we are not going to get to experience the intimacy that you are after with us unless we accurately understand who you are. And so right now in this moment, I'm declaring to you again, Jesus, that I love you. And anybody here that wants to do the same is just going to stand up here in this moment and they're just declaring to you, they're declaring to the world, they're declaring to the universe, to the angels, to everybody that is a follower or, or not. That I love Jesus. I am in a love affair with Jesus. Not with religion, not with the church, not with Christianity, but with the man himself. And he is going to give me everything that I need. Jesus, I believe that you are all sufficient. That if we have you, all the desires of our hearts will be satisfied. That if we know you the way we're meant to know you, that it will change our lives in ways we cannot even comprehend. And so Jesus, my prayer is that we would come to know you in a more intimate, closer way than we have ever, ever, ever known or experienced you before. That we would feel so close to you that we would have no shame. That the temptation and the desire to run and hide from you would cease. that we would recognize that your grace is sufficient to cover all of our failures. And that when you look at us, you don't see our flaws. You don't see our mistakes. You don't see our past. All you see is the love that you have for us. Thank you. Thank you. Help us to learn what it is to love you because you first loved us.